What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. My favorite animal is the penguin. So it should come as no surprise to you that as a girl, one of my all-time favorite books was Mr. Popper's Penguins by Richard and Florence Atwater. Originally published in 1938, this Newbery Honor Award-winning book spoke to me as a child because who would not want to live with a flock of penguins? But it also spoke to me because of the realities it conveyed. It showed that living with penguins would be hard and there would be lots of challenges to face. So it would help me understand the fact that while living with a penguin would be cool, it certainly would not be perfect. In 2012, thoughts of my childhood fondness for Mr. Popper's Penguins returned when I read the Caldecott Award-winning picture book by Tony Buzio and illustrated by David Small called One Cool Friend. The book's main character, Elliot, also dreams of owning a penguin, and when his father unexpectedly agrees, Elliot finds out just what living with a penguin is like. I love this book because it adds on a wonderful theme about making friends that I never found in Mr. Popper's Penguins, but at the same time, it made me go back and read an old favorite. This experience underscores one of the things I believe about literature, and that is that books make connections. Connections happen between a book and their reader as we see our own experiences in the pages we read. Connections happen between books, just as they did for me with these two penguin books. And books can even make strong connections to the world around us as we see events and themes playing out in our real world. For me, this reality, that literature does not exist as a single entity, but connects to us, itself, and the world, is one of the things that makes books and reading richer. This is also an important key to know because I have found as a teacher an avid book recommender, one of the best ways to find a book that will make a great fit for a reader is to see how it connects to them, their reading, and their world. So maybe next time you're looking for a great book for one of your readers, you'll take a tip from Rachel's World and take a closer look at book connections. A writer's inspiration can take many forms, a novel, a picture book, a short story. Writer Tim Wynne-Jones has written in all of these genres and then some. Tim talks to Rachel today about his creative process and how he enjoys the anticipation of discovering the direction a story will take. He is an award-winning author of 34 books, including novels, picture books, and short story anthologies. His most recent novel for young adults is The Emperor of Any Place, and his newest picture book is Secret Agent Man Goes Shopping for Shoes. Here's Rachel with Tim Wynne-Jones. We're in studio today with writer Tim Wynne-Jones, and to start out, Tim, I'm just really interested in the variety of formats and genres you write in. Uh, mm-hmm. You're very eclectic in what you write, that you write picture books and novels and that you write short stories. And so just the context of that, how is writing those different formats and genres different from each other? What are their strengths and weaknesses? Why do you pick a particular format for a particular kind of story, or does the story pick the format? Yeah, I think that's the point, that the, you, you know, you, an idea will come to you, and 
um, and you just want to represent it in the best possible way. And, and I've actually, it's, it, this will sound crazy, but I've actually at times had an idea that I thought was going to be a picture book. And it literally morphed into a novel <laughs> because when I started really considering various aspects of it, I realized, no, I can tell it from a very different point of view. And then it becomes a much bigger kind of story. Um, I just love exp uh, trying new things. In fact, I think the first book that I've written in any format is, 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 is often the strongest, like my first collection of short stories is one uh, some of the kinder planets is, is one of my very favorite books and it was just so exciting discovering this new way of writing that was so short <laughs> that was so clean and there was no sub stories and and, and and I just got very excited about it and then uh, I I write to discover um, uh, I don't outline I know lots of people outline and it's a perfectly good way of writing but I I I want to, I don't know, I want to find out what's going to happen as I turn the page. And uh, of course that requires a lot of revision, but um, it's the way I, I do it. That's wonderful. You mentioned the revision process. I think that's really an interesting connection because particularly for kids, they think that writing just comes out fully formed and mm -hmm. that it's there on the page. So let's talk a little bit more about that process. What is your revision process? What, what is the starting of that process? Well, I really like to try and get the first draft done quickly. I like to get the energy of a first draft. I don't want to. I, I, I try to resist going back and revising um, at first because I think, uh, as messy as it might be by the end, um, the uh, I wanted to have the, the that initial kind of inspiration and energy uh, to it. Then, then everything slows down in a really good way because then I go back and I really look forward to, to the next part, which is oh, page by page. As I read, for instance, I go back to page one and I know, let's say something's happening on page one, there better be something happening or nobody's going to read the book. I go back to page one and I know now that later on such and such is going to happen. So I can begin to craft the early pages to lead better towards this event that's happening, you know, 100 pages on, um, that I didn't know about when I wrote the first draft, if you see what I mean. And so, and so it, that happens, so you go through a second draft, and typically it's going to take quite a few drafts. My, my new book, The Emperor of Any Place, took 13 quite big revisions, um, and it, 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 I just couldn't solve some of the problems right away. It took time, it took about three and a half years, which for me is long. I usually write a book in about a year. Um, but each book makes its own demands on you. And, uh, and if the book is worth writing, then you're just going to have to keep plodding along and trying to figure out how to fix whatever it is that's, you know, making it difficult to work right. Yeah, that's a really interesting concept that I think particularly children need to understand is that there's some problems that might need to be fixed. So could you give us a more specific example, particularly with the emperor of any place, that there was a problem that you needed to fix and maybe how you went about fixing it? Oh, boy, yeah, there were so many problems. At one point, the book was uh, literally twice as long as, the, as when it was published. I had all sorts of 
kind of extra stories that just didn't fit together. Um, one of the specific problems with uh, um, the Emperor of any place was that it had magical elements to it, um, which I have not, I'm, I've not written any fantasy, um, and, and it isn't really a, a, a fanciful novel, but there is... There is this island in the Pacific it's, uh, during the Second World War, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a magical kind of island. So uh, things happen there. And, um, and I, had to, I had to figure out how exactly that magic worked. You know, it, there has to be, uh, this will sound um, contradictory, but there has to be real logic to, to any kind of fantasy. It has to make sense within the world you're creating. Um, and any, I, I think in, in, typically in fantasy writing, people talk about world building. You know, what is this world? How does it operate? And once you've made those rules for yourself about how this particular world operates, you have to stick to them. And um, there's nothing more annoying than reading a, a book, a science fiction or a fantasy, or so, and and the and the the uh, characters are able to break the rules of the, of the, of the world they're in. So anyway, that, that, that for me was a challenge because I hadn't written that kind of story before, although I've read a great deal of, of fantasy books. Um, and, and it was just one aspect of a book that was otherwise realistic. And then the intermingling of the real world in the story, um, the contemporary real world, and then this um, this part of it, which is actually historical fiction, uh, but also laced with fantasy. So it was really a, a mixing of genres. Um, I mean, there's a, the, the part in the Pacific is set during the Second World War, so I had a lot of research to do. Um, and, and when you're writing a book, the, the research can really take over, and you get some of it at first, and then with with uh, revisions, you, you, you keep finding new information, so with revisions you keep changing uh, what you know to be the real facts of, uh, from the period, etc. What resources did you use to do your research, and, and what did you find to be the most helpful as you did your research? Well, we're all pretty lucky nowadays to have Google and to have search engines. You know, um, you can find the, the, uh, the important thing about that, however, is, is, is verifying what you do find. Um, there's all sorts of sources, as we all know, on Google that are far from correct. So if you find something you can use on Google, um, and it really is going to be great, the first thing I do before I do any writing is, is you know, verify th- those facts by looking at other sources um, on the Internet that, are, that uh, seem to be more, um, you know, uh, more worthy of of uh, respect, if you know what I mean, or uh, and also going to the library and finding history books and uh, uh, yeah. So it, it actually, uh, you know, I started writing books before we had the internet, and I just remember spending you know days and days and days in the in research libraries and and um, getting the library to bring in books from other libraries through interlibrary loan and. Um, it was a lengthy process, and a lot of that has been has been made a lot quicker by the internet. But again, you have to be really careful. Um, uh, what are your sources, and how uh, and how valid are they? 
That's interesting. I think particularly with a novel like this one that has a very historical setting, you'd have to do tons of research. But what about with your more realistic novels? Is there other kinds of research or other kind of fact-checking that you do with those kinds of novels? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, um, even a a novel set right in the moment... um, there's inevitably something you need to find out about. I mean, uh, and, and I have to say, I would say most writers will tell you that research is, is the great fun of writing. I mean, sometimes you can get carried away and end up reading books and books and books, and really it's just because you're so interested in this subject. And I think, I think that's part of it. Is I, I don't think I've written a book where there wasn't at least uh, one character who had some interesting in, uh, hobby or 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 background or you know and and so and and so you have to research that field and and you have to research it enough to feel really familiar with it and actually a, a great part of the fun of writing is to enter this other world that you're creating on the page and um, and if it were exactly the same as you know the life you lead, it would be a pretty boring business writing a book. So I always want my characters to be different than me, especially since I write for young people and I am far from young. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tim, you may not be young, but you're certainly young at heart. Thanks so much, Tim. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Rachel Wadham talking with Tim Wynne-Jones about his creative experience writing for children. Next... Cole Wissinger of the World's Awaiting Team visits with Spencer Linton, sportscaster and co-host of BYU Sports Nation on BYU TV and radio. They talk about Spencer's passion for sports and what he enjoyed reading as a child, from sports stats on player cards to the Berenstain Bears. Linton has worked as a sportscaster at iProvo Cable in Provo, Utah, KJCT News 8 in Grand Junction, Colorado, KESQ-TV in Palm Desert, California, and elsewhere. Spencer Linton was also the play-by-play voice on BYU-TV for the Rio Olympics. Here's Spencer and Cole. We welcome Spencer into studio today. And before we get into any sports-specific stuff, can I ask you just about some of the children's books that you got into? Like, what was your go-to book in your elementary school library? When I, the earliest books that I can remember feeling a competitive spirit and like sports and like wanting to participate in sports go back to uh, the Berenstain Bears <laughs> with Stan and Jan Berenstain, uh, Berenstain and um, soccer, baseball. I remember like my mom would read these books to me when I probably was, I don't know, first or second grade. And then I would go back and reread them to myself. But I remember thinking, when Brother Bear walked out in his specific baseball uniform, and I think they were the Cardinals in that book, and they were playing the Blue Jays, I just I was so in, like engaged in the uniforms and the camaraderie and the teams that I my first question was, when when do I get to play? You know, when do I get to play? When do I get to be involved in a team and wear a uniform and have a hat and and try and be the star? So having this interest in sports then, did that help you open the doors to books, you know, that maybe you wouldn't normally have gotten into sports books later on as you grew up and things like that? Sure. And I became interested in autobiographies, mostly of Ty Detmer when he made his Heisman Trophy campaign run in the early 90s. Again, I was in elementary school and I... I was reading Ty Detmer's autobiography when I was in, I don't know, fourth grade, you know, which is just 
kind of goofy for this fourth grade kid to be running around with it, but I, I was fascinated by it. And then the same thing with Steve Young's autobiography um, after he won the Super Bowl when I was in middle school. So I became t- really in- intrigued by life stories and, and how they became these great athletes. And you co- always kind of want to put yourself in their shoes. You're like, man, where did they come from? And well, they were, they were like me. They, they went to class, you know, they had struggles in school with homework and frustrations and they didn't always have good games and good practices. So it was fun to relate with them on a very personal level through those books, which is why I sought out those. And I like fiction reading too, in terms of sports, but for me, like, and it's, this is translated over to most aspects of my life. Like I love reality and reading reality accounts, whether it be about war, uh, about major historical events, and particularly about sports figures and sports events. I just love the emotion and the what really happened and hearing from the horse's mouth, like, this is what I was thinking in my mind at this super critical juncture. Um, and I think the psychology behind that's really fun. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that because we've heard on this show before that young boys do sometimes have a harder time to connect to reading. But as they're exposed to real accounts of real sports figures or real historical figures, uh, we can get hooked. And that was true in your life as well. Absolutely. Absolutely that uh, resonated with me. Um, And like I said, I, I read a lot when I was in elementary school and but for the most part it like i I, those books that i just described uh about athletes and heroes and wars and those were the ones that i could not wait to go back and continue reading and just i don't know it activates the mind there's nothing quite like it and i read a ton of game notes now because of sports casting and sports articles and things like that but one thing that has not changed is i I love the emotions behind things and how they play out. You know, take, for example, something that I witnessed happen um, just a couple of nights ago. Uh, there was a tragic death of a of a Major League Baseball pitcher named Jose Fernandez for the Miami Marlins um, in, in a boating accident. And um, one of his good friends on the team is a, is a guy named Dee Gordon. And D hadn't hit a home run all year. He's not a power hitter. And so they all of his teammates wore number 16 to honor Jose, and they had a big emotional pregame ceremony for him and put number 16 on the mound and it just it was tearjerker for sure well d's the leadoff batter for the marlins and he went out and took his first swing and mimicked how jose used to take his batting stance at the plate and i thought wow that's really cool and then he switched to the other side of the plate where he really bats and hit a home run and bald the entire way around the bases and then i mean it's hard not to cry watching that like misty eyes for sure. And then he said to his teammates, and he was quoted by CBS Sports, look, if you don't believe in God, then you better take notice because I've never hit a ball that far in my life. And I know I had some extra help today. And I thought, wow, you cannot make that stuff up. It was just an unbelievable story. That is something that literature and sports, when they combine, it just, it's poetic. They can tell such a beautiful story. You're right. And as you were telling, I remember when I was a younger child watching sports and watching these stories unfold. A moment I'll never forget is the Monday night football game after Brett Favre's father had passed away. And he has one of the greatest nights of his career. And you just see that same 
that same emotion that draws you. Yeah, I remember that. Game. I think it was five or six touchdown passes mm-hmm. and almost yep. 400 yards passing. And the poor Raiders just ran into <laughs> it that night. It's, and these are the stories that sports can tell sure. us. Um, so let's hop on to a different thing then. Beyond just reading literacies, sports can help us in all sorts of our young academic lives. So let's go down the math route for a moment. Um Sports are often tied to the statistics that you can follow as well. So why don't you tell us a little bit of your history with uh, looking up those kind of things and telling a story through numbers I as collected, opposed to words. Yeah, no, I collected baseball cards and basketball cards and football cards and prided myself on gathering complete sets of these different releases of baseball cards through different brands, whether it be the upper deck cards or the Don Russ or the tops baseball cards, you know, and, and, and with each of, within each of those cards were like the player's statistics, where they went to school, when they were born, their averages. And so all of that knowledge, whether I really meant it to or not, just started to like pour into my mind. And so by the time I was in seventh grade, my friends and my brothers, who was my older brother, his friends would always just laugh because they'd be like, Hey, who, uh, where did, uh, Barry Sanders go to college? And when was he the Heisman trophy winner? You know, and I'm this 12 year old kid. It's like, Oh yeah. Uh, Oklahoma state, uh, 1988 Heisman trophy winner. And they're like, that is unbelievable. But it was all because of the numbers and the baseball cards and my, my access to that. I mean, and that trains your memory too. Like you can translate that to things that the rest of the world thinks are more useful maybe than sure. remembering random college statistics. Yes. I was a pretty big fan of doing that yes. myself. But it also helps me memorize like the capitals of South America or things to help me. Once you train your memory in a way, it helps build up that part of your brain and mm-hmm. you can expand it and learn. There you go. I'm just <laughs> putting a positive spin on all of the hours and the hours I spent reviewing and collecting those cards. Now, what, and, and in a same math vein, were you ever into fantasy sports as well, fantasy football or baseball? I'm still and into this, fantasy football God. right now. Yeah. In fact, last night, I here's the thing about fantasy sports and projections and numbers and all that stuff. It is, you can't predict it. Sports are the one true reality television. You cannot project what is going to happen it just it happens in the moment and everybody lives it together now on social media and so it's this ultimately unifying thing um but fantasy sports make it fun because you know i generally wouldn't have an interest in watching the atlanta falcons and the new orleans saints on a monday night while football is fun to watch it's like yeah i can think of a bunch of other things to do but if you have invested your interest in a fantasy football team where you're like, well, I have the Falcons quarterback on my team and I need him to throw three touchdown passes so that I can rub it in my older brother's face tomorrow that I beat him in the fantasy football matchup. So now I'm going to watch. And you're following all those numbers and those percentages. And at the end of the game last night, I was like, I just need Matt Ryan, the Falcons quarterback, to throw 20 more yards. That's all I need. The game's out of hand. Like they had won the game and I'm like, throw the ball. Just do it. And they didn't, and I lost. And I saw, but I'm watching till the final second. So really, it's a genius thing by the NFL, and a way to engage them and increase ratings and all that stuff by making every snap and everything matter because you you feel like you're a part of it. Fascinating concept. Mm-hmm. Fascinating stuff. And and that math becomes inherent when you start learning it as a young kid and having that interest. When I see a touchdown by 
either one of the Falcons running backs that were doing it last night, I see six points. When I see a run for 10 yards, I see one point. And you start being able to do that math super quick in your head because it gets ingrained. A a true math thing gets ingrained into your head at such an early age just because it was fun, not because your teacher told you that algebra would be useful in life. Absolutely. I look at it this way. I hated to run and condition when I was playing high school basketball specifically. But if there was something involved with it, like, okay, we're going to do this full court layup drill. And if we can make this many layups as a team in a minute as we're sprinting up and down the floor, then we will reward you this way. We will make you run less. And it's like, okay, this is fun because I'm trying to score the basketball, not just straight running, you know, and Running is discipline and all, and I get that, the mental fortitude that, that that creates, but it was so much more enjoyable when you were doing something else. So if I look at math homework and I'm like, boring, but you can find a way to engage your students or the people that have to do the homework in something that they find interesting, where it's like, hey, let's take a real world scenario and put them in it and let them figure it out. Oh, man, the doors that it opens rather than just an assignment or busy work. Now it becomes something that they are invested in and they can get excited about. And so I think that's applicable in a lot of different aspects of life. Absolutely. I agree. So one last thing, then you work in a communications field um, and a lot of different things in that communication field. And so if you're talking to young six or seven year old Spencer Linton or, or the kids that want to do a kind of thing that you want that you get to do every single day, um, how how did you develop these wonderful communication skills and what kind of advice would you give? Well, first of all, um, some people know, but most don't. I first became turned on to sports broadcasting and communication specifically when I was nine. And I sat in a man named Craig Bowlerjack's chair. He's now the voice of the Utah Jazz and a tenured professional. And he's been super successful and made a ton of money and just a class human being. Uh, I, I sat in his chair when I was in fourth grade, when I was nine, and thought, this is amazing on a TV set. And I, I went back and revisited that, met him when I was in sixth grade, wrote him a letter about an article I wrote on the Super Bowl in 1993. And he wrote me a letter back. My parents framed that letter for me and gave it to me as a graduation present when I graduated from BYU. So I have that in my office. And so the reason I tell that is you can be really young and decide this is what I want to do. Not to say you can't change your mind, but for me it was just like this is is what I want to do. And so you can never start too early um, developing those things that you want to do. I knew I loved sports. I knew I loved to talk about sports. I knew I loved numbers that dealt with sports and reading and all that stuff. And so why not take your natural strengths and your hobbies and try and turn that into a profession? Even though the doubts and the hard times come along, you've if you want it, you can achieve, you can achieve it. And I know that sounds so cliche, And I heard it from a million people too, but it's such a simple principle. Like if you want something, you are willing to do things that others aren't and it will pay off, but just be patient, stick to it, make your dreams come true. Thank you so much, Spencer. It's been a pleasure. Spencer Linton, co-host of BYU Sports Nation on BYU TV and radio, talking about his love of sports that got a boost from the books he read growing up. 
We finish up the show today with two poems that will take you into another world. Robert Louis Stevenson's The Swing, read by Emily Brown, and The Song of Mr. Toad from Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows, read by Mike Pond. How do you like to go up in a swing, up in the air so blue? Oh, I do think it the pleasantest thing ever a child can do. Up in the air and over the wall till I can see so wide rivers and trees and cattle and all over the countryside till I look down on the garden green down on the roof so brown up in the air I go flying again up in the air and down The Song of Mr. Toad by Kenneth Cram The world has held great heroes as history books have showed but never a name to go down to fame compared with that of Toad. The clever men in Oxford know all that there is to be known, but they none of them knew one half as much as intelligent Mr. Toad. The animals sat in the ark and cried, their tears in torrents flowed. Who was it said, there's land ahead, encouraging Mr. Toad? The army all saluted as they marched along the road. Was it the king or Kitchener? No, it was Mr. Toad. The queen and her ladies-in-waiting sat at the window and sewed. She cried, look, who's that handsome man? They answered, Mr. Toad. Two delightful poems, The Swing by Robert Louis Stevenson and The Song of Mr. Toad by Kenneth Graham. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.